Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Folks, before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that the book which I've been promoting on here and on our socials is finally out. I want to thank you to everybody who's purchased a copy, and I want to encourage those who haven't yet to pick one up. You can, of course, find a copy on Amazon, or you can head down to your local bookseller or bookstore and get them to order a copy for you. That way you kind of help support a local business in your community. Remember, folks, the title is Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe. I hope you pick one up. I hope you enjoy it. And happy reading. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. So often we accustom ourselves to the idea that history is the narrative of big events, of major leaders, watershed moments that forever change the face of all we know and all we consider normal in our day-to-day lives. Now, sometimes that is true, but sometimes... History is made up of the stories that, for some, resonate only within a specific region, for a specific people, from a specific place. These micro-histories, as we call them, can be extremely valuable, in fact, can be just as valuable as the more commonly known macro-histories in teaching us about our country, our history, and the communities and the peoples that live in it that made it up. In many ways, history is like a brick wall, and it is built by stacking bricks on top of bricks on top of bricks. Now, some of those bricks are large and dominate the facade of the wall, while other bricks are small, but are nonetheless important for maintaining the cohesion of that entire wall. Today's history episode is one of those bricks. It is written by a guest writer, that is, Matthew Del Papa, a volunteer with the Northern Ontario Railroad Museum and Heritage Centre. He is a lifelong history buff 
and he is an avid storyteller, as this episode will show. He has actually written a book before. In fact, he has combined his two passions by chronicling his hometown's decades-long fastball dominance in his book, Capriol at Bat. But today, he brings us a different story. A story of a railroad disaster and a mass grave forgotten to time. This is Season 6, Episode 12, The Mystery of Capriol's Mass Grave. Today's book recommendation, besides Matthew's own book, Capriol at Bat, is titled The People's Railway, A History of the Canadian National by Donald McKay. This was published back in 1990 by Douglas and McIntyre. And while it is a little bit dated, this fascinating history describes the Canadian National's battle against inherited debt and its constant struggle to make a profit while also acting as an agent for national development. We meet Sir Henry Thornton, the charismatic American brought in by Prime Minister Mackenzie King to pit the railway against the glamorous and privately owned CPR. And the bluff, outspoken Scott Donald Gordon, who was parachuted in by Ottawa after World War II to remake the aging steam railway into a modern corporation. So let's turn our attention to a cemetery in northern Ontario and look at a small town and the mystery attached to its rather unique cemetery. Once central to everyday life, cemeteries are concrete examples of history in action and one of the few places devoted almost entirely to remembering the past. The history of graveyards is both long and fascinating, from potter's fields to pauper's graves, from family mausoleums to boot hills, but it is the stories they contain and the puzzles left behind on faded markers that concern us today. And few cemeteries have a mystery attached to them, like the one in Capriol, Ontario. Located on the 200-kilometer-long Vermilion River, and sitting astride one of the nation's two main rail lines. The small town, current population about 3,500, has a fairly typical community graveyard. Small and well-maintained thanks to local volunteers, what sets Capriol Cemetery apart isn't its age or its size, but rather the presence of something unexpected, a mass grave. Mass graves, the burial place of numerous individuals in one location, are often thought to be a place found in other places like war-torn nations, countries overwhelmed with strife, too overwhelmed, in fact, to even cope with unexpected surges in local deaths. Certainly not 20th century Canada, one of the most peaceful and prosperous places on earth, yet Mass graves exist even here. Before we can get into how a mass grave, the often unmarked resting place of numerous unidentified individuals, ended up in a small northeastern Ontario town, 
we need to establish that there is no separating the town from its founding and still most dominant industry, the railroad. Capriol was founded by one man, named in honor of another, and built by two railroads, the Canadian Northern Railroad, which came first, followed by its successor, the Canadian National Railway. Capriol's founder, a local businessman by the name of Frank Denny, was a colorful character. The Boer War veteran began life in northern Ontario working in Sudbury's famed Montreal Hotel, but was soon manager and then even owner. He spent time as a lumberman, a mining promoter, a builder, political organizer, hotelier, and adventurer. But it was his outwitting the railroad and getting a written guarantee of Capriol's preferred treatment by that corporation in perpetuity that made Frank Denny a local legend. His personal sacrifice, the man turned down a fortune in selfless benefit to the fledgling community he founded, and his astounding forethought prompted the town of Capriol to name a half-dozen streets in honor of him and his children. Colorful doesn't come close to describing this next man, Frederick Chase Capriol. Born in Britain, this self-styled Canadian patriot made Toronto his home and established himself as an auctioneer, a businessman, and tireless railroad promoter. Described by admirers as a sanguine and ingenious Englishman, many years a resident of Toronto, Frederick Chase Capriol boasted of having crossed the Atlantic 23 times and once even claimed that his five decades of work on great projects, as he put it, left him with scarce time for the necessary calls of nature. Disdained by his contemporaries who labeled him as Mad Capriol and belittled for his many accomplishments, Frederick found himself mercilessly mocked and constantly ridiculed for flouting tradition. Unbroken at being shunned by his supposed social superiors, undeterred by the open antagonism of the then-powerful church, and undaunted by costly legal setbacks, Frederick's resilient spirit carried him ever forward through difficulties that would have broken lesser men, including the time he ran for the Ontario legislature and failed to earn even a single vote. He was, in many ways, a virtual dervish of can-do enthusiasm. Frederick spent more than 50 years in efforts to improve his adopted homeland and place the fledgling nation's interests above all other concerns, often ignoring social niceties and so-called propriety in his drive towards progress. There can be few men who embodied a spirit more in contrast to how modern Canadians think of cemeteries as peaceful and serene resting places for our late loved ones, calm, quiet, and soothing oases of solid stone markers and growing greenery. Too often, we forget that in many early industrial cities, graveyards were often the only open public ground. People routinely strolled through the local cemetery, children played between the gravestones, and families were even known to picnic on the grass. That 
busy image is at odds with Capriol's cemetery, where a small white cross sits alone, isolated and forgotten, the sad reminder of the town's darkest day. Black, handwritten words are painted across the cross's face, and it reads, R.I.P. CNR train wrecks, 1930, Milnet 27, Criar 8, 35 buried. So how did a mass grave, the tragic burial place of 35 people, come to exist in a quiet northeastern Ontario railroad town? What was the cause? What strange circumstances tragically killed so many people? The answer to that question, like so many others about Capriol, come back to the railroad. Current rail traffic doesn't do the town of Capriol justice. The number of trains and employees across Canada have plummeted since the rail's heyday. In 1920, for instance, the nation's two largest railroads, the Canadian Pacific and the Canadian National, employed approximately 200,000 people. Today's much-reduced numbers, the CN Rail is currently at 27,000 workers, doesn't diminish the fact that Capriol was once a major national transportation hub. Fully half of the trains crossing Canada went through this one division point. Decades of rail traffic led, inevitably, to accidents. Some of these accidents proved fatal, and this brings us to Capriol and its mass grave. Ask about the burial site around the town, and only a disheartening minority know of it. The more informed will tell you there are between 30 and 80 bodies buried there. Research reveals that there are significantly fewer remains under that isolated cross than legend would have it. In fact, there might be none at all. No one is certain. We know a few facts, like when, where, and why, but not that one all-important number how many, as in how many people died. Newspaper accounts of the period vary between 14 to 17 fatalities, including four children, all caused by three derailments on the very same tragic day, Thursday, June 26, 1930. Two weeks of torrential rain culminating with a record downpour of four inches in 14 relentless hours had northern Ontario's rivers swollen and creeks flooding in late June 1930. Landslides, mudslides, and washouts were everywhere. Railway lines, as well as highways, were undermined, leading to dangerous conditions throughout the region. In Capriol, where the rail lines split in three directions, going west, east, and south, precautions were taken, but they didn't go far enough. As the local superintendent of the nearby power plant stated, these were the worst floods he had ever seen in this country. In the neighboring city of Sudbury, six bridges were literally carried away, and many more were rendered unusable due to several feet of overflowing water. City residents were grateful for the Canadian Pacific Railway trestle bridge, which caught runaway garages and saved the expense of rebuilding them from scratch. Elgin Street, a major road, sat under six feet of water, and its businesses all suffered severe damage. To the west, the CPR Sault Ste. Marie line suffered nine considerable washouts, but no loss of life 
or rolling stock. Out of the three derailed Capriol trains, it was those aboard passenger number three, running from Toronto to Winnipeg, who got off the easiest, helped, no doubt, by the reduced speed mandated for Capriol Junction. No casualties resulted. Number three derailed while entering the town, but remained upright. It was, all things considered, a minor incident, one that, in better weather, would have been rectified within an hour. Freight train number 401, however, was not so fortunate. It was en route from North Bay to Capriol, and it hit a 50-foot-deep washout near Criar, about 26 miles east of Capriol, that sent the engine and nine cars hurtling off the tracks. Eight railroad jumpers were killed who were hiding out in an empty cattle car, and both the engineer, Jack M. McDonald, and the fireman, Albert E. McLeod, suffered severe injuries and later died. Jack orphaned four children, while Albert widowed a wife and orphaned ten. Roderick McDonald, Jack's brother, was among those who freed the trapped engineer. Roderick McDonald, Jack's brother, was among those who freed the trapped engineer. He described the horrific scene for reporters, saying he, Jack, was pinned there for several hours before they could get the acetylene crew there to take him out of the steel. The engine never stopped swaying from side to side, and Jack never knew what role was going to carry it over and down the embankment into the river. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Despite the death toll, things could have been much bloodier, however, if not for the heroic brakemen. But before we tell that story, folks, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to Facebook, if you go to our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate like five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program, as well on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on all the podcast apps out there, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Clifford Bovin was riding in the engine cab with Jack McDonald and Albert McLeod when the locomotive plummeted into the sinkhole, battered by the accident, head badly cut, with broken ribs and severely burned by the engine's coal-stoked boiler. Clifford left his fellows 
He climbed up out of the muddy sinkhole and walked two miles from the wreck to the nearest working phone to send word to the nearest station that a derailment had occurred and the tracks were washed out. Because of this call, local section men desperately flagged down a CPR train approaching on the very same washed-out tracks, a train carrying 300 passengers. The 14-coach passenger train had been rerouted and was following behind number 401 with just a 20-minute interval separating the two. Only after he had completed his warning and learned of the passenger's safety did Clifford seek treatment for his catastrophic injuries. I felt my right arm burning, Clifford later said. I managed to wrench it away and get out of the cabin. My whole thought was to save that CPR train. I was thinking of nothing else as I climbed up the steep sides of the 50-foot chasm into which the engine had plunged. Clifford was a veteran of the First World War. Clifford was wounded at the Battle of Passchendaele while fighting with the 21st Battalion. He knew a thing or two about hardship and suffering. His actions on June 26 prevented what could have easily been the worst rail accident in Canadian history. But it was the third derailment of that day that proved the worst in just about every way possible. It happened in an isolated locale after night had fallen and involved several fully loaded passenger cars. Passenger train number four, running from Winnipeg to Toronto, derailed four miles west of Capriel, not far from the former lumber town of Milnet, which by 1930 had been abandoned to ruin. It derailed at about 10.30 p.m., Seven of the nine cars went off the track and two, both passenger cars, tumbled into the bloated Vermilion River. Four children and one adult drowned, while two dozen more were seriously injured, including the conductor, E. Hamilton, of Toronto. Desperate passengers struggled to rescue their fellows. Men threw themselves into the river and stood neck deep, for a half hour or more, fighting the raging current, the pouring rain, the Stygian dark, the river's muscle-numbing cold, and their own still bleeding injuries to help others. One elderly female survivor commented, they lived up to the motto of women and children first, for not a man tried to save himself until every woman and child in the cars was safely out. Only the engine, along with its attached coal tender, and the observation car remained on the rails. The crew, many suffering fresh wounds, uncoupled the engine and sent the engineer, Charlie Virtue, on to Capriol itself. With communications throughout northern Ontario hampered by the weather, hundreds of telephone and telegraph poles were washed away, as were many buried lines, it was up to Charlie to bring the first news of the wreck to town. A relief train of about 40 people, including the superintendent, assistant superintendent, two doctors, all available nurses, and any employees with first aid experience was rushed to the scene. That train, now carrying the worst injured, returned to Capriol at 1.15 a.m. and unloaded in temporary hospital quarters set up in the town's YMCA located trackside. 
Survivors of the accident, many still in shock, recounted how they made their narrow escapes by groping their way to the overturned passenger car doors through darkness, water, and smoke before swimming to safety. The whole town of Capriol turned out to help. Food and clothing were brought to the Y. Many of the town's children even sent their beloved toys along to cheer any youngsters caught in the tragedy. Homes and beds were opened up to exhausted passengers until a purpose-sent relief train, consisting of day coaches, sleeping cars, and a dining car, arrived from Toronto many hours later, after the derailed number 3 was returned to the tracks and moved into the northwestern siding to clear the way. Though a tragedy, June 26, 1930 was, in many ways, also Capriol's finest hour. Its residents pulled together and, without hesitation or thought to costs or consequences, the entire town hurried to the aid of strangers. Unfortunately, for all concerned, the wrecks that day did indeed have consequences, deadly ones. Fifteen people are confirmed to have died, four of them children. Their names are known, as are the resting place for 14 of the remains. Research undertaken by several current Capriol residents has revealed that most of these deceased were buried elsewhere. One adult and three children, all victims who drowned in passenger train number four, were returned to their hometowns in Saskatchewan. And the eight unidentified rail jumpers killed aboard freight train number 401 were buried at a public cemetery in Sudbury. Only the late train crew, both Capriol residents, are known to be interred in the town cemetery where their individual gravestones still stand. This leaves just one fatality in doubt. The tragically young Giselle Boussier, age seven months. The babe might be the sole occupant of Capriol's mass grave. Her funeral was reportedly held at the town's YMCA shortly after the accident and proceeded to the Roman Catholic section of Capriol Cemetery where the era's respectfully phrased reports strongly imply that she was buried. Strangely, there is no marker for young Boussier anywhere on the grounds nor listed in the cemetery's archive. What remains a mystery, however, is whether anyone else was killed in the day's wrecks. Where did the numbers on the commemorative cross come from? The difference between 15 and 35 seems too great for a simple accounting error. Did 20 unidentified bodies get laid to rest in Capriol's so-called mass grave? Not even contemporaneous newspaper reports agree on the day's tally, differing to a surprising degree. There remains the very real possibility, however, that no one is buried under the town's plain white cross. Rumors, especially in small towns, have a way of exaggerating these things. At the end of the day, any discrepancies regarding Capriol's supposed mass grave cannot change what happened. A day of tragedy and a day of triumph, horrific loss and heroic action, a community grieving and a community coming together. Say what you will about the railroad, and in Capriol they say plenty, 
but the industry has been pivotal to the town for well over a century. Generations of families benefited from Frank Denny's deal and remain proud that their community was named in honor of Frederick Chase Capriel. Come what may, good or bad, there's no separating the town from its story railroad past, even if there is just one lone white cross as a reminder of its deadliest day. Capriel, affectionately known by locals as the little town that could, has also been called the town that wouldn't die on more than one occasion. Distraught citizens even held a mock funeral for the community in 2001 when provincially mandated amalgamation wiped it from the maps. But don't look for the town amongst any of Canada's current 18,000 known cemeteries. Instead, when next you visit the local graveyard, walk between the markers and marvel at the history on display. Some are new, many old. What lies hidden amidst them? Stories, undoubtedly legends, probably. Cemeteries are more than merely places of sorrow. They are also places of remembrance. Bring some flowers if you want, but be sure you carry a bit of the past out with you when you leave. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder... You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.